Experts explain how vaccine passports and a cashless society could change the West for good. We look at how the Chinese Communist Party is connected. Could China strike the U.S. without firing a single shot? We hear from a retired U.S. general about how it could happen through unrestricted warfare. And for those watching our full episode, we zoom in on China's economy for a look at real estate, supply chains, and predictions from a prominent Chinese economist recently silenced on social media. Some are comparing the Biden administration's newly formed Disinformation Governance Board to a panel from classic literature, the Ministry of Truth, from the novel 1984. Panelists explain what this, along with vaccine passports and a cashless society, could do to our future and how it connects to the Chinese Communist Party. Jason Perry with NTD's Evening News has the story. A digital gulag is a means of denying a person freedom, not by placing them in a physical prison, but by placing them in a digital prison. Reggie Littlejohn is founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. She spoke at a webinar titled Digital Gulag, Vaccine Passports, Disinformation, and a Cashless Society. She says if people do not resist now, a digital prison can easily be accomplished with vaccine passports, a cashless society, and the Disinformation Governance Board. Censorship of speech and the control of the flow of information are straight out of the Chinese Communist Party playbook. She said the Disinformation Board is the Chinese Communist Party's central propaganda department with American characteristics. She explained that anything that uses a digital QR code to show your vaccination status is a vaccine passport, and much of your information can be attached to it. So they can be used to, for, to attach facial recognition, gate recognition, real-time geolocation so that, that they, uh, they know always where you are, your social media posts, your internet search history, your internet spending history, and very importantly, your credit card and your bank accounts. She says one of the issues the government would be able to do in a cashless society is if they label you as a domestic terrorist, they can cut you off from being able to spend your money, or as she calls it, put you in a digital prison. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security for comment, but did not hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. If the Chinese communist regime invades Taiwan, how many people on the island are willing to take up arms and defend their homeland? A recent survey says 73 percent. This is 2 percent less compared to the previous survey conducted half a year ago. 54 percent say they are confident in Taiwan's defense capabilities. This is a 4 percent drop compared to the last survey before the war in Ukraine began. The think tank of Taiwan's defense ministry carried out the survey. It aims to analyze if the war in Ukraine is impacting the willpower of people in Taiwan to combat the Chinese Communist Party. The results indicate that the war in Ukraine only has a slight impact on the morale of people in Taiwan. But there's now an obvious difference when people consider the U.S. factor. A question in the survey asks, do you think the U.S. would send troops to help Taiwan? Before the war in Ukraine, 57% said they believe so, but now only 40% say they do. 
Another question shows the willpower of the Taiwanese people to protect their country. It asks, if the U.S. doesn't send any troops to Taiwan, and if you are not confident in Taiwan's ability to combat China, in other words, when there is very little chance of winning, are you still willing to fight for Taiwan? 60% say yes. The Chinese Communist Party is working to push its influence across the global stage. But what's the most likely way the regime would choose to strike the U.S. in times of conflict? A book published in 1999 by two Chinese colonels suggests it may be possible without military force. A retired Air Force Brigadier General explained the issue in an interview with the Epoch Times American Thought Leaders program. Weapons, battlefields, and soldiers have been the picture of wars for centuries. But in 1999, two Chinese colonels devised a new form of warfare that may not require any of it. When it came out, and it was kind of esoteric, a little bit complicated, really sounding crazy. General Spaulding is an expert on the Chinese regime's key strategy, unrestricted warfare. Its first rule is, there are no rules. According to what the Chinese colonels told to an interviewer, therefore any and all tools are allowed when trying to defeat a technologically superior adversary, like the U.S., without firing a single shot. How is that done? From hacking into websites, to flooding U.S. streets with fentanyl, to stealing intellectual property. And now another method is being used, exploiting the current world situation, the global pandemic. How can I use it to my advantage? And so you know, unrestricted warfare, you know, makes, it makes perfect sense that you would shut down domestic travel and allow international travel. Why? Because you want to take advantage of, you don't want to suffer the pandemic on your own. I mean, that's what we would expect, right? We would expect no, let's keep it within, you know, if it happened in America, let's keep it here. Let's don't let it break out internationally. Well, now you're not thinking like the Chinese Communist Party, where, you know, warfare is day, daily. It never ends. There's no beginning and end like there is here in, in the West. China is the world's second largest air travel market after the U.S. But during the beginning of the pandemic, China continued to allow international travel to and from Hubei province, the epicenter of the outbreak. That's well past the date when China imposed harsh restrictions on domestic travel to isolate Wuhan. If you're the Chinese Communist Party, if you're saying domestically you're not going to allow Chinese nationals to, to fly in country, but you are going to allow them to fly internationally, not only are you going to allow them to fly, if a country says, you know, don't fly to our nation, you're going to say that they're essentially being racist. You've really got to think hard about that. Like, what, what's the motivation behind that? On February 4th, 2020, Chinese authorities requested that local airlines continue to operate flights to countries that didn't impose travel restrictions. Throughout January and February, China imposed lockdowns as the virus spread within its cities, but continued to allow international travel abroad. It was only on March 27, 2020, after the virus had become a global pandemic, that China closed its borders to foreign visitors. Everybody needs to suffer the pandemic, because if we all suffer the pandemic, then we'll be able to take advantage of that fact. What do we have? We own the supply chain. What are they going to need? PPE and masks and everything else. So how do we take advantage of that? I mean, these are the, this is the way the Chinese Communist Party thinks. 
The pandemic has allowed China to gain influence by offering the world much-needed public health goods. Beijing has attempted to portray its medical supplies as donations. But a think tank report found that more than 99 percent of China's PPE exports in 2020 were sold, not donated. Hey, you have a shared vision for, you know, how humans should treat other humans. And the Chinese Communist Party just is not that type of organization. Since the outbreak first broke out in Wuhan back in 2019, the Chinese Communist Party has been hiding data and not sharing vital information about the virus within the international community. That includes what the party knew about human-to-human transmission and how fast the virus spreads. So within China, the message was, this is really, really bad. But there's no data. No data forthcoming. To this day, there's no data forthcoming out of China. General Spaulding says that made global scientists reliant on China for solutions. So scientists need data. The Chinese were obfuscating the data. Well, if you don't have data and you don't want to be wrong to the low side of casualties because, you know, you want to be prepared for the worst. So plan for the worst hope for the best. That's, that's what you're thinking as an epidemiologist. He adds the Chinese Communist Party will never come out and say anything when there's a crisis. Instead, it will watch the situation and take advantage of it. It was all designed to create enormous fear within populations all around the globe. Now, the first step of gaining control of any population is to create some kind of fear. You're willing to give up your freedoms Uh, because you seek safety. And so in unrestricted warfare, they talk about this idea of, you know, create, how do you create fear and how do you take advantage of fear? Spalding says that fear itself was the unrestricted warfare doctrine in play at the time. But as for achieving it, that's where the use of internet comes into play, which Spalding says far surpasses any other weapon system ever deployed in history. That's all for today's China in Focus on YouTube. We're now sharing a shortened version of our program on YouTube. That's after being demonetized for a year. A war without bullets. The Chinese regime has a strategy to win without fighting, to destroy a country from within. In this special report, we look at how the Chinese regime uses unrestricted warfare, how that's playing out in America, and how lives are already being impacted. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A war with no rules, known as unrestricted warfare. But what exactly does that mean? Unrestricted warfare was the name of a you know paper written by two former Chinese colonels, and it, it laid out an idea of warfare that has no restrictions. Anything goes. To understand the role of unrestricted warfare, it's important to take a look at history, going back three decades. And in the Gulf War, the United States and the coalition partners uh, demonstrated devastating capability to use combined arms. Everything was brought to bear, and it was a crushing defeat for the Iraqi army, which was one of the largest militaries in the world. That's Kerry Gershanik, professor and author of Political Warfare, 
strategies for combating China's plan to win without fighting, and media warfare, Taiwan's battle for the cognitive domain. He notes how that victory really caught the attention of the Chinese Communist Party. After 1991, the Gulf War uh, victory, the PLA and the CCP put a lot of effort into studying how the U.S. and the coalition partners won such a devastating victory. PLA is short for People's Liberation Army, the official name of China's military. CCP refers to the Chinese Communist Party. But as for why the Chinese regime wanted to learn from the Gulf War... The ultimate goal even then, as we, we well know, was to, to move the United States aside, not just move it aside as the, the world hegemon, to use their terminology, uh, but to, uh, to take that place and actually to destroy, defeat the United States of America. Eight years later, in 1999, two colonels in the People's Liberation Army published a book called Unrestricted Warfare. To achieve the goal of overpowering the West, Joshua Phillip, host of Crossroads and senior investigative reporter with the Epoch Times, explains. You know, the CCP can look at America and say, okay, we can't meet them on a, in a head-on you know, head-on-head head battle, but we can conquer them through other means. And so we can basically create the standards of conquering another nation uh, through, through non-military means. For example, uh, foreign investment for the Chinese Communist Party is regarded as a type of, you know, strategic uh, tool. And so for the CCP, this is warfare. Media is warfare. Psychology, how you interpret information is warfare. Uh, legal battles are warfare. While the book notes 24 different kinds of unrestricted warfare, the Chinese Communist Party officially adopted three of them. Those three are media warfare, psychological warfare, and legal warfare. Gershanik describes how that's been playing out. We've seen uh, in the past three decades uh, the most incredible uh, pillaging looting of intellectual property and just stealing of data and, and hundreds of billions of dollars worth um, military technology, uh, commercial technology and, and, and information stolen off of uh, corporate computers and financial institutions. Philip adds examples of how that's been integrated in America. If you look at every single part of what makes a country function, of what makes a nation, whether it's businesses, whether it's academics, whether it's, you know, uh, let's say our institutions, whether it's you know, politicians or influencers or media personalities even, uh, the CCP has methods to target them. And for them, this is warfare to conquer another nation through non-military means. To help shed light on the subject, Philip helped the Epoch Times create an infographic called China's Secret War on America. That infographic goes piece by piece and lays out all of those strategies, culture warfare, drug warfare, smuggling warfare, resource warfare, industrial warfare. Uh, it gets into d three different categories of war, non-military, which is like businesses and you know culture, Hollywood, things like that. Uh, Trans-military, which is a mixture of non-military and military, like cyber attacks, for example. And then unconventional military. Tactics, systems they would use if a real, like, you know, shooting war were to ever take place with the CCP. And that's things like biological warfare and so on. It also maps out the four stages of subversion needed to overthrow a government from within. 
starts off on demoralization. You break the will of a country. You make a country stop functioning as it's meant to function. You infiltrate their institutions. You co-opt their businesses. You make their big tech companies you know, serve the favor of a foreign country. As an example of that, Philip notes. Nike and these other companies, for example, where they're criticizing America and damning us based on our history, right? Criticizing us, while at the same time they're using slave labor in Xinjiang and China. And they don't, they don't dare criticize that, right? It's things like that. Demoralize them, break their will, criticize them, wear out their infrastructures, make the people feel hopeless. That's demoralization. The second stage is destabilization. Philip points out how through that channel... You make their systems stop functioning as they're meant to function. Uh, you can look at the CCP's influence, for example, in some of the different, uh, you know, grassroots organizations in the U.S. that have played roles in creating instability inside the United States. Um, you look back at the different Maoist organizations uh, going back to the 1970s leading up to today. Once a country has been demoralized and destabilized, the third step is conflict. Eventually, you enter a state of chaos where people are or conflict where people are fighting on the streets, where, where you know there's really no essential rule of law, where you've made it so the country can no longer have any kind of rule of law or harmony among its people. You've broken all the bonds that create a nation, right? Racial harmony, religious harmony, political, you know, politicians actually serving the functions to protect their citizens rather than serving foreign interests, for example, those kinds of things. Once a state of chaos is achieved, what's left is intervention. Eventually, it gets so chaotic that people begin demanding some kind of change. They can no longer live like that. Society no longer functions. The institutions no longer work as they're supposed to. They, you know, they've been taught to criticize and think badly of everything about their country, whether it's the culture, the history or the current system, and they begin demanding a new system. And finally... And from that, they move in, and that's what they call normalization. And normalization is where they institute a new form of government, often bringing policies that people would never normally accept. One major part of the Chinese regime's strategy is what's known as the United Front. The United Front Work Department is it's a branch of the Chinese Communist Party, first of all. Uh, Mao Zedong called it the magic, one of the magic weapons of the CCP. And the United Front Work Department is a system, a government agency, meant to infiltrate foreign countries, establish networks of influence, and co-opt the leadership or influencers of that country. And how is the United Front functioning as the CCP's magic weapon? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Kerry Gershanik, professor and author of Political Warfare and Media Warfare. We also hear from Joshua Phillip, host of Crossroads and senior investigative reporter at the Epoch Times. They touch on the Chinese regime's bid to take down America, not through traditional warfare, but something called unrestricted warfare how that's playing out, and what steps can be taken to counter a threat that may not even be seen. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, Tiffany, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me back on, Tiffany. So recently in the news, there's these terms, unrestricted warfare and hybrid warfare, when it comes to how China kind of attacks the U.S. and allies. So to begin, how would you summarize these terms? 
Well, Tiffany, Unrestricted Warfare, you know, is the name of this paper written by four, two former Chinese colonels. Hybrid warfare is the idea of kind of combining different types of unconventional warfare. Uh, but really, when it comes to the CCP's, like, real tactics on this, this is what the idea is. It's how do you achieve the goals of war? Like, you know, what, what would you get if you were to conquer another country? Uh, maybe you gain control of their political system. Maybe you can gain control of their economy, their businesses. Maybe you gain control of the population through, like, media control or something like that. How do you obtain those exact same results through non-military means without engaging in troop-on-troop -troop combat? That's what the idea of this type of warfare is. And so instead of engaging in troop-on-troop -troop combat, where you know the CCP can look at America and say, okay, we can't meet them on a, in a head-on, you know, head-on-head battle, but we can conquer them through other means. And so basically create the standards of conquering another nation uh, through, through non-military means. For example, uh, foreign investment for the Chinese Communist Party is regarded as a type of you know, strategic uh, tool. And so for the CCP, this is warfare. Media is warfare. Psychology, how you interpret information is warfare. Uh, legal battles are warfare. In fact, the CCP even has it adopted into its military code, uh, which is the three warfares doctrine. Media warfare, psychological warfare, and legal warfare. Uh, they have tools, for example, like the United Front, how to co-opt another country's leadership. How do you gain control of the influencers? How do you gain control of Hollywood? How do you gain control of the hearts and minds of a country? If you look at every single part of what makes a country function, of what makes a nation, whether it's businesses, whether it's academics, whether it's, you know, uh, let's say our institutions, whether it's you know politicians or influencers or media personalities even, uh, the CCP has methods to target them. And for them, this is warfare to conquer another nation through non-military means. Basically, fighting without rules goes back thousands of years. And so this concept of unrestricted warfare is new to, say, those of us in democracies, because we work by the rules. We try to. We have international conventions. We have law. And, and we try to adhere to it to the best that we can, whether that be Japan, whether that be Taiwan, whether that be the United States of America or the European Union. We do try. Under unrestricted warfare, which is the thought process that is clearly guiding the Chinese Communist Party, there's no rules. There's no restraint. And so that's, that's what we mean by unrestricted warfare. Unrestricted warfare applies to all kinds of warfare, typically. Kerry, you kind of mentioned the history of where these terms come from, but how far back does it go? Oh, you could go back to Clausewitz, or you could go back 2,000 years in Chinese history. Um, there's always references to where somebody used a stratagem, somebody, somebody did something that was unexpected by their, uh, their adversary. So you know, tr tracing it back, to our modern history, the reason this becomes prominent in, on the, the Chinese Communist Party's radar screen um, is that in 1991, for the generation that wasn't born 30, three decades ago, 30 years ago, uh, we had the Gulf War. And in the Gulf War, the United States and the coalition partners uh, demonstrated devastating capability to use combined arms, uh, military uh, warfare, uh, command and control, uh, the 
the satellites, everything that we brought to bear on every level, cyber, everything was brought to bear and it was a crushing defeat for the Iraqi army, which was one of the largest militaries in the world at the time. This really caught the attention of the People's Liberation Army and, and, and the Central Military Commission and, and the Politburo because they had been sort of drifting along with this People's War concept and sort of slowly modernizing. But after 1991, the Gulf War uh, victory, the PLA and the CCP put a lot of effort into studying how the U.S. and the coalition partners won such a devastating victory, and number two, what they needed to do to defeat us, because the ultimate goal even then, as we, we well know, was to, to move the United States aside, not just move it aside as the, the world hegemon, to use their terminology, uh, but to, uh, to take that place and actually to destroy, defeat the United States of America. So that's why in 1999, eight years after the Gulf War, this book comes out, not as a doctrinal publication. It comes out more uh, th through a publishing house that's really for PLA entertainment. But it resonates so powerfully in the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership and across China itself because this is the means to defeat the United States of America. This this uh, using any means available, then there was 24 different warfares listed, and that grew over time beyond what the book stated. But we, we can beat the United States by asymmetrical means. Given how many different types of warfare there are, are there any specific examples that we're seeing play out now? Sure. Um, in Taiwan, one of the newer terms that, uh, that wasn't listed, incidentally, in the original 24, is cognitive warfare. So the, the PRC has uh, got a major uh, push uh, to, to win on the cognitive warfare battlefield. Now, we'll come back to terminology, Tiffany, because we, we tend to trip ourselves up. We come up with way too many terms. So let's focus in on cognitive warfare on Taiwan. Uh, a number of the news media organizations in Taiwan are run by people who are getting their funding from the People's Republic of China. And so you could, the stories that you read, the editorial stances that you see, Tiffany, could have been straight out of Xinhua, okay? Could have been straight off CCTV because in effect they are. The funding uh, that comes in, the funding that they use to, um, from advertising, for example, or they, they, uh, they'll, they'll use the business community uh, to affect uh, the, uh, the media organizations. For example, you could have a pro-Taiwan uh, newspaper, but if the people who are advertising in that newspaper are pro-PRC, they're going to say, fine, we'll pull our advertising, you'll go bankrupt, you'll go out of business. And what you see, and we have seen, both there and in other countries, is the newspaper, unfortunately, through moral cowardice, uh, bends. The newspaper will say, okay, fine, we'll change our editorial stance. We want to stay in business. We have mouths to feed. So that's, that's a little bit of lawfare. That's a little bit of, um, it's a little bit of media warfare or public opinion warfare. Psychological operations. The large number of aircraft incursions uh, in the, the tai Taiwan ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone, that's psychological warfare. 
That's designed to wear down the people of Taiwan. It's designed to wear down the pilots and the commanders and the troops of the airmen in Taiwan because they're the ones that have to scramble all the time to respond to this. So psychologically, they're grinding down or they're attempting to grind down the people and the armed forces of Taiwan through that particular psychological warfare operation. There's many more if you if you actually read, uh, which I do, the English versions of China Daily and uh, PLA Daily and um, uh, Xinhua and a number of other publications, you can see there's a relentless barrage every day of psychological warfare directed against Japan, psychological warfare directed against the Philippines, so, uh, psychological warfare directed against the, the countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Um, it's relentless and it is global, but the psychological warfare is, is a very big element of those three pillars as well. So it sounds like basically winning a battle without even having to go to war and do the traditional kind of fighting. So what are some examples of maybe how we're seeing this play out, especially in America? Well, Tiffany, one of the big one of the big methods that's playing out is what they call the uh, United Front Work Department. Uh, the United Front Work Department is it's a branch of the Chinese Communist Party, first of all. Uh, Mao Zedong called it the magic one of the magic weapons of the CCP. And the United Front Work Department is a system, a government agency, meant to infiltrate foreign countries, establish networks of influence, and co-opt the leadership or influencers of that country. And so, for example, um, United Front works through what they call tongs. Tongs are like fraternal organizations, guilds, uh, family name associations. These tongs are like the unofficial governing bodies of Chinese communities. I mean, some are good, some are bad. Uh, they're not all the same. The United Front targets them. Once they target them, they gain control of They gain control of that entire network, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, depending what it is. Uh, one of the big examples of this is like in New York, we have the uh, Fukian American Association. Fukian American Association is one also tied to one of the largest organized crime groups in the world. Uh, that's the Fukqing Gang, one of the biggest human traffickers like in the world, not even just in the U.S. Fukqing Gang is also one of the CCP's major kind of influenced tongs. And uh, of course, the, uh, the Fukian American Association works as one of their arms to get into political circles and so on. And so they might, for example, go to your local city council member and then do something as simple as inviting them on a trip back to China. He goes on a trip to China, comes back and starts going on TV, talking about how great the CCP is. Behind the scenes, of course, there's been things done to co-opt that official gradually. Sometimes it's through, let's say, uh, blackmail. Sometimes it's through money. Sometimes it's something as simple as just gradually changing their perspectives. Once they do that, they'll start creating policies and taking actions that are in line with the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And so even though they're like a U.S. official, they begin acting as an, as an extension or someone in the interest of the CCP. And that's the goal of this. And Carrie, out of these dozens of different warfares, which one would be the most dangerous but maybe unseen threat to America? The United Front operations, where they, they get American institutions, our education institutions, and when we're talking Harvard, we're talking Stanford, we're talking Ivy League institutions and the big names, when they co-opt them through grants um, and where you have professors, you have researchers self-censoring, because they know, you know, there's a price to pay 
if you don't self-censor about what you're saying about the PRC, um, that elite capture of academia, of our politicians, of the, through the United Front operations, that's, that's incredibly serious threat because it's very insidious. It's our own people turning on us in Taiwan, in the United States. So we need to ferret that out and name and shame and prosecute uh, if we have the right laws to prosecute. But the other way that they reach us is uh, we're a highly tech-savvy, you know, Taiwan, especially tech-savvy, the United States. Everyone's got their face in their, their iPhones. Everyone's on uh, a different social media platform. And so the, um, the cognitive warfare coming at us through uh, the, 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 the online, uh, through the Internet, uh, the way that's bombarding us through deep fakes, the way it's uh, bombarding us through disinformation, propaganda, um, and, and it's, it, it's done in such a way that a lot of people don't even know that they're doing it. Do you realize, Tiffany, that the PRC even uses TikTok uh, video games and other video games, because so many of the video games are developed in the PRC, as indoctrination tools? That's all for today's China in Focus on YouTube. We're now sharing a shortened version of our program here after being demonetized for more than a year. Our full episode can be watched on our partner platform, Appbox TV. To sign up for a free 14-day trial, please click the link down below. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you tomorrow. protect Roe versus Wade. What would abortion bans mean for the hard cases that no Republican wants to acknowledge? Exactly. Aren't Republicans so heartless that they would favor abortion bans, even in the case of me wanting to hook up with hot babes but not wanting to be a dad? Uh... For a tragic real-world example, take my frat bro in Texas who knocked up this totally crazy chick. Then Texas passed this law removing his reproductive freedom to tell her to get an abortion or he'll break up with her. And now she's using being pregnant as an excuse to get totally fat. What? Uh, women deserve to have reproductive But it doesn't end there. When he tried leaving her, she sued him for child support. But giving your child what they need to survive is a deeply personal decision that shouldn't be forced on to someone. Isn't that why we're here? No. Well, technically, yes. I mean... And overturning Roe v. Wade victimizes fun guys like me who just want to vibe with smoking babes who won't be able to if women have to take sex all serious and stuff because of babies and sh**. <clears throat> Overturning Roe versus Wade is an abuse of the court's power. Just because Amy Coney Barrett is much more hotter than the other female justices doesn't mean she can get to do abortion bans. The other female justices may look like lagoon monsters, but what counts is their smoking hot babes on the inside for protecting the rights of guys like me to get with baddies. Shut up, shut up! Don't, don't listen to him. We need to remember what this is all about. Exactly. Guys like us wouldn't be able to get laid as much and stuff. So let's keep Planned Parenthood counting body parts 
so I can keep counting bodies. Thank you. We need to overturn Roe versus Wade. What do you think about the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade? Let me know in the comment section below. Please like, share, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you want to help us make more, donate at patreon.com slash freedomtunes. Thank you so much.